One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Our guest today, I am really excited about. We've been hoping to talk to him for some time. His name is Glenn Lowry, and he joins us from the U.S. Hi, Glenn. Hello, Freddie. Let me give an introduction to the, I suspect, minority of viewers that don't know anything about you.、Um, you are were one of the very first African American professors at Harvard. I believe the, you were the first tenured. Uh, professor of economics there. You're currently at Brown University in the social sciences department, and for the purposes of this conversation, you're one of the premier and most eloquent explainers to the world of the vexed question of race. And you seem to have a way of of calming things down and talking through them more rationally. Does that sound like a fair introduction? It's very flattering, and I thank you for it. So I want to do a bit of a round the houses with you, if that's okay, Glenn. There seems to be a new race-related news story about every two or three days at the moment, and I just want to cover two or three of them with you. So first of all, this question of the U.S. Supreme Court nominee—it's been going on for、uh, more than a week, and the president is now due to show his early selections. But what is different is that he has pre-announced that his nominee. For Supreme Court justice, will be a black woman. This was a campaign pledge, and he is now overtly saying this before having begun the selection process. To outside observers, that seems strange. How should we think about it? I think it is strange. I think no one needs to be apologetic about reacting to that announcement with uh, a uh, bemusement and a kind of quizzical. What?、Um, this comes out of Joe Biden's political ambition、uh, and the character of American politics during the South Carolina primary, when Biden was uncertain of prevailing in the contest for the nomination of the Democratic Party in 2020. He wanted to appeal to the black vote, and so、uh, he made this announcement. He announced that his vice presidential selection would be a woman, and that his、uh, first appointment to the Supreme Court should he be. Fortunate enough to have one would be a black woman.、Uh, you could call this craven pandering,、uh, if you like.、Um, I'm I'm bemused by it because、uh, it unnecessarily raises questions about the fitness of whomever he might appoint to the court, having announced that I'm not considering anyone but black women when he might have simply chosen a black woman as his nominee and crowed about it after the fact. Uh, and not have cast、uh, any doubt over the choice that he would have made. He could have said, "This is the best, most qualified person that I could find." That might have been disputed, but in any case, as he's done it now, he's limited his、uh, 
range of options to a very small percentage of the total population of people who might have been selected and you could say has put an asterisk by the name of whomever it is that he might ultimately select. But of course, there will be a very predictable uh, debate here castigating anyone who makes the observation that I just made. Your appointment has an asterisk because you announced in advance that you were restricting your attention to a small sliver of the total population of potential appointees. Castigating anyone who makes that observation as being a racist because they will say, how dare you suggest that the best qualified person for the Supreme Court could not be a black woman? I didn't say any such thing, however. All I said was black women constitute a small percentage of the total population of persons who might be chosen. And to announce in advance that you're only going to consider them is to place the person ultimately chosen in the position of having doubts raised about her qualifications. Let me note, by the way, that the Biden administration has also. Uh, uh, rescinded the practice of appealing to the American Bar Association for assessment of the fitness of its judicial appointments. This had been a tradition for many, many years. The ABA would announce that a candidate was highly qualified, qualified or less than highly qualified for the job. And they don't want that vetting from the outside and independent uh, and, by the way, left-leaning uh, American Bar Association because they want the liberty to make whatever appointment they make without professional commentary on the fitness of their appointment. This is, by the way, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. This is the final stopping point for any legal dispute. There are nine justices serving there. The quality of an appointment is not a small matter. We're not now admitting a marginal student to an elite uh, college campus. We're selecting the people who are going to govern the country. I think what people who take a different view might say at this point is, first of all, it's not the first time. Uh, when I expressed surprise, people kept sending me examples of previous presidents who have made a promise to select, first of all, a woman. I believe Ronald Reagan even made that uh, suggestion or commitment. And President Obama was keen to um, nominate a Hispanic person to the Supreme Court, which he did with Sonia Sotomayor. So I just wonder, is it new? Do you think something new has happened or is this just the continuation of a development? Nothing qualitatively new. It's another, if you will, slide down the slippery slope. That, that would be one way of looking at it. But no, it's not totally new. No. Mm. I guess what- That felt... doesn't make it all right. Right. So what felt new, at least to me, because I, I actually saw it on an Instagram post from the White House where he was there meeting with his vice president and the members of the Senate to discuss potential options. And the, the caption read, the, he has committed to choosing a black woman. So th there was this sort of disconnect. It felt like he was saying the quiet part out loud. And that felt new. Do you think there's something in that, that even if we sort of accept that these kind of considerations might be going on in the background, to put it out there in advance somehow breaks the meritocratic idea. Doing it would have probably led to some speculation, oh, I see he's playing affirmative action with the Supreme Court, but it would have left open the possibility that he wasn't doing so. Saying in advance that he's going to do it leaves no, leaves no doubt about it. My appointment as professor of economics at Harvard, which happened in 1982, was accompanied by 
an initiative at Harvard to enhance the quality of the Afro-American studies department there. Uh, I was jointly appointed economics and Afro-American studies. I was 33 years old. It would have been entirely fair for some outside observer looking on that scene to say, oh, well, fine. But if he hadn't been black, they wouldn't have appointed him. That's probably true. So such is the condition that we find ourselves in. And I mean, I could make myself into a martyr and bemoan the fact that my outstanding intellectual gifts would not be entirely properly valued in the marketplace because I'm black and they wanted a black person and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, but that would be kind of small uh, for me for me to do it. There may be some truth in it, but uh, the fact of the matter is I had tremendous opportunities. I've tried to make the best of them. What we're getting to then on this question of affirmative action, is it that some degree of affirmative action is acceptable and maybe a good idea to correct heinous sort of distortions in the composition of these kind of bodies, but it needs to be done in the background and with more sensitivity and somehow it's got too far. I would take the position that the US Constitution does not bar the use of race as a factor in making selections of this sort. Uh, some people hold that the Constitution uh, unequivocally prohibits affirmative action, that it is in effect racial discrimination at the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment forbids it. I don't take that view, but I think how you do it matters a lot. I think the extent to which you do it matters a lot. So if a university says, if we don't do anything, only 3% of our students will be black. And, and that's just unacceptable in a country where blacks are 13% of the population. I'd say fine. But if in so doing, they decide that they have to mirror the population percentages and that the student body has to be 12 or 13% black if that's the proportions in the population. And in so doing, that last five, 6% are students who are not really qualified to do the work at a selective institution, that's a, that's a very bad idea. It's a bad idea for the students. It's a bad idea for the society, in my opinion. It waters down standards. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's a very anti-meritocratic. It's a bad idea. They could have settled on 8% or 10% as opposed to 12 or 13%, and that would be a prudent measure. Likewise, in the case of the Supreme Court appointment, the president might have engaged in a kind of subtle and tacit preference rather than making a crowing about it and, and, and making it a uh, overt and explicit. It sows a kind of uh, contempt for the uh, standards that we ought to be employing to and so on. So, so I think there are ways of doing affirmative action that are uh, more defensible and more prudent uh, than others. And I think these things change over time. I mean, we are in the year 2022, a half century past uh, the civil rights uh, era. Uh, we're far, far into this regime of special treatment of Blacks because of the history of racism. We have to ask ourselves whether that's how here in the United States we want to live in an ongoing way. Do you think there's this kind of confusion around the question of representativeness as well. That if you take it to the nth degree, that everything must try to be perfectly representative, 
you end up in a strange world. And with a body of nine people, that's going to be difficult to achieve. I mean, which, which kind of public bodies, you mentioned student bodies in universities there, where you might have some consideration as to whether they are slightly representative of the population. Which bodies do you think should be representative? Should we try to do that? I, I think it's a very good question. And what do we mean by representativeness? And who can represent whom? These are good questions. How many Catholics are there on the US Supreme Court? We could enumerate them. I'm pretty sure there are more Catholics on the court in proportion than there are Catholics in the population. How many Jews? Dare we ask the question? How about gays, openly gay people? None on the Supreme Court? How dare we? Etc. That's a rabbit hole that we don't really want to go down. And it, it's kind of silly because it presupposes that something as superficial as racial identity or sexual orientation is of such fundamental significance that legal uh, councils must have members present who, when they act out in that context, are acting on behalf of, quote unquote, their group. Well, these individuals are not only women or blacks or gays or Catholics. These are human beings whose humanity supersedes and, and uh, reaches beyond the categories that we might impose on them. So uh, I worry about this deeply. People say you must have a black member of the congressional district because 30% or 60% of the voters there are black. We trivialize the act of political representation when we reduce the constituents to their demographic category. And when we stipulate that the person representing them has to belong to the category before he can or she properly represent their interests. Uh, that's a very narrow-minded vision of political representation. You mentioned there the um, question of Jews and Jewish representation, and I thought I would use that as a leaping off point to talk briefly about this Whoopi Goldberg controversy that has also happened in the last week, because you know these things come about once every three days at this pace. And my understanding is she was there on The View and they were discussing a movie that relates to the Holocaust. And she then said the Holocaust is not about race. How do you think Whoopi got to the point where she felt the Holocaust was not about race? Well, I assume it's because she thinks Jews are white and she sees the European uh, early mid 20th century context, uh, which gave rise to the Holocaust. Uh, as an intra, quote, white, close quote, matter. I assume, I don't know in the interior of Whoopi Goldberg's thinking, but I think it's something like that. And I would chalk that up to ignorance and, and naivete. I mean, just uh, not being immersed in the long history of modern Europe and anti-Semitism and uh, the ideology of Nazism in which the uh, notion of, quote, race, close quote, uh, had a very particular meaning. And I think Whoopi just didn't appreciate the actual meaning of the word race uh, in the context in which the Holocaust arose, uh, re revealing her ignorance. I mean, she ought not to have put it that way. It is, it, it is a, a misstatement or a mischaracterization to say that the Holocaust was not about race. It just wasn't about, quote, race close quote, in the way in which we in the United States might be talking about race. It feels like it does speak to something wider that has happened, though, which is a kind of simplification 
of this question of race and these controversies and a, and a focus maybe to the exclusion of other sort of fractures on black-white race relations as the, the, the sort of what race really means. I, I, do you think that's true? Um, that somehow there is a sort of myopia almost. There's a, a, a single-mindedness about some forms of race difficulty where others get kind of left behind. I absolutely think it's true. And by the way, it applies on the other side of the line. Blacks, quote unquote, here in the United States, people who would be classified as black are not a homogeneous population. Uh, we have an increasing number, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, in the United Kingdom of immigrants from uh, West Africa um, who are making their way. They're black uh, by any notion, but they're not in any way uh, in the same cultural um, economic uh, circumstance uh, as are the, uh, an, if you will, native-born American black population who descend from who descend from slaves. So, arguably, the Jews in particular are now considered not a minority that needs defending. It is true that uh, Jews have prospered here in the United States on the whole. In terms of education, occupational status, uh, income and wealth, Jews are are doing well in terms of influence on the political life, uh, presence in the uh, media and in the academy and in the finance and so on. Jews are, quote, overrepresented, close quote. So a person might think, oh, Jews are doing just fine. But again, ask many Jewish people who are concerned about anti-Semitism, which one finds not only on the far right, Jews will not replace us kind of sentiments, but which one finds also in uh, uh, ethnic minority communities, especially amongst African-Americans, there, there's quite a bit of anti-Semitism. There are attacks on uh, Jewish interests. Um, the Reverend Al Sharpton, a prominent civil rights leader, uh, got his start in part by uh, demagoguery uh, over incidents in which there was conflict between Blacks and Jews, whether that was in uh, uh, Bensonhurst or Crown Heights in uh, Brooklyn, or whether it was in Harlem where he led protests against a Jewish shopkeeper, et cetera. Um, I don't mean simply to single him out, only to point out that he's a prominent and uh, well-respected. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spokesman for uh, African-American interest and that he has a history in which I think anti-Semitism would be a fair descriptor uh, to apply to some of his actions and statements. But I give that as one example, if I were a Jewish person of something that I would want to, that I, that I want, would want to attend to. So the call there is just for a little bit more nuance, a little bit more um, understanding of the, the, the race issue isn't quite as kind of binary uh, as people make it out, I guess. Is that, is that how we make this better, do you think? I'd like to tone down the emphasis on race and uh, be more concerned about the the humanity of people. If we wanted to talk about disadvantaged poverty and the lack of wealth in America, there are more poor and uh, low wealth holding white people. Uh, they are, after all, a substantial majority of the population than there are black people. And anything worth doing, whether it be reform of education or changes in the tax laws or extension of the welfare state uh, programs, you know, et cetera, anything worth doing to help black people is worth doing to help people who are in need of, of help. Uh, I would have our arguments, that is our African-American arguments, couched in broad humanistic terms. And um, uh, I think that less attention to racial uh, identity and more attention to uh, human common uh, need is uh, healthy for the country. The kind of million dollar question there is, does it actually make it worse? You know, is there a scenario in which so too much emphasis on race alienates people such as the people you just talked about, maybe people in the poorer parts of the white community or brings the issue back to the surface in a way that hadn't been true in previous years? Are you worried that you know, essentially elite progressives with virtuous intent are accidentally making the issue worse. You put that very, very well. Uh, actually, I've been arguing this about uh, the police violence question. So George Floyd is killed, murdered. Uh, a jury has spoken by Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis um, in two, 2020. A policeman inappropriately applying force. He had his knee on the man's neck. The man expires. Was that a racial incident? Now, the police officer was white. The man who was killed, George Floyd, was black. It became a racial incident. A whole movement uh, was, it was launched or abetted by uh, the racial characterization of that incident. But why should we understand it as a racial incident? I'm, I am willing to ask. Very little evidence at all, if any, that Chauvin, the police officer, was motivated by racial animus when he acted inappropriately. 
Um, and on the victim side, George Floyd, the fact that a policeman might over uh, use his, uh, his power and uh, harm a citizen, that's something that happens to white people too. There are cases parallel to the George Floyd case in which the victim has been white, which have not occasioned national attention. So that's one thing. But the other thing that I would say is that by cultivating a, a practice of looking at such incidents in racial terms invites a parallel practice of looking at criminal victimization of citizens in racial terms. You want to count the number of white cops who have killed unarmed black men? Somebody's going to start counting the number of black murderers who have abused black carjackers, who have robbed and threatened black uh, assaulters, who have bludgeoned and beaten white people. There are an endless number of such cases. There is enough racial uh, blame to go around. And uh, I'd hate to live in a country in which when a white person was victimized by a black criminal, the first words out of their mouth was, a black criminal victimized me. Uh, that's not good for black people because there are many black criminals. And that's not good for our country because the issue is a criminal victimizing a person. The criminal's blackness doesn't stand in for his race. He doesn't represent his race when he acts badly. The victim's whiteness doesn't stand in for her race. She doesn't represent her race when she seeks redress. Likewise, for police officers who act badly, if they're white, they're not representing whiteness. And if the victim is black, he's not representing blackness. It doesn't feel like you're winning the argument overall. I mean, we, we, we literally are just talking about the president who has just announced his selection for the most important job he's going to fill um, on the basis of race first. So do you think that, that you are winning? Do you think this is a very serious situation that's getting worse? How worried should we be and how, how bad could it get? Or do you think maybe sanity will prevail in the end? No, I think we're a deep doo-doo, as uh, George Herbert Walker Bush famously once said about something I don't remember what. We are, we are a deep doo-doo. This is not going to be, uh, I don't know that it ends well. I really don't. Um, so the Supreme Court is going to rule on a lawsuit in which Asian American students are suing Harvard University, a private University and the University of North Carolina, a public university, alleging that these institutions' use of racial preferences in the admissions policy is discriminatory against Asians who are underrepresented. If you were to admit only based on academic qualifications, you would have twice as many or three times as many Asians at these institutions as you now have, they allege, and so they sue. The Supreme Court is going to rule. The Supreme Court has six conservative justices. Uh, the majority of whom have publicly stated that they have serious doubts about affirmative action, about the constitutionality of affirmative action. Now, I've already given my position here that I think the 14th Amendment does not uh, forbid the use of racial preferences, but I'm not a lawyer and I'm not on the Supreme Court. There's a very good chance that racial affirmative action will be stricken by the Supreme Court. If it happens, I assure you, there will be mobs in the streets of this country. No one is going to take, no progressive activist is going to take the Supreme Court's ruling as an opportunity to turn within and to consider, if we want to be at Harvard or the University of North Carolina in larger numbers, why don't we get busy preparing our youngsters from the cradle to be competitive in this great country that we live in, 
where competition is the coin of the realm. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to interpret that as an anti-Black move by a racist Supreme Court, I assure you. That is a disaster, and I think we're headed toward it. Why is there not more sympathy for the Asian community among these progressive activists? I, I, I don't understand it. What they, why does a minority that maybe you know, powerful institutions are suppressing not provoke more sympathy. You know, the Asians are called a model minority. People say that sardonically. You point to Asian success and it's uh, reflected back, oh, they're a model minority. And of course, the the uh, subtle implication there is that you must be anti-Black if you compare Blacks to Asians and you find the Blacks wanting or anti-Latino. You see, you put them forward as a model minority. Um, and uh, I think the, the, there, there's also doubts about meritocracy. I mean, I, I think, again, I'm not a contemporary intellectual historian, but I'll just step out on this limb, that some of the uh, corruption and, and, and decadence of uh, the uh, legacy population here, black and white in American society, is exposed by Asian success. They, they expose the uh, lack of depth and seriousness of too many of our people by their assiduous self-application and their excellence in the mastery of the currency of the modern world. I'm talking about calculus. I'm talking about biochemistry, uh, you know, et cetera. So it's um, actually, the, it's sort of nativism in a sense, it's, it's- Yes, yes, now this Asian population, they're not foreign born people in the, on the whole that we're talking about here. These are Americans that we're talking about, but there's a cultural difference. Uh, people wanna get rid of the test. I mean, think about that for a minute. They wanna ban the assessment instrument to measure the intellectual achievement of people who are applying to scarce, prestigious, elite positions of intellectual work. They wanna ban it, why? Because the Asians are, in effect, because the Asians are doing too well, exposing, as I say, the laggardliness and unfitness of too many of our people, whatever their color might be. I'm going to go to the last of our topics, if I may, Glenn, which is this question of the super podcaster Joe Rogan, um, who, as we know, in the past week or so, there's been a big, big powerful movement to get removed from Spotify, to get him cancelled. The original transgression was inviting on people who were sceptical about vaccines and he was not adequately you know, oppositional to their views or, or whatever. Um, that was his first crime. It appears that uh, that wasn't enough to get him removed from the platform. And somebody um, has now uncovered earlier historic instances of him using the, the N-word. Um, I believe all of the instances he used them were in quotes or they were referencing something else. He wasn't actually just using it. But what, what should we make of that, do you think? Well, first of all, Joe Rogan has a $100 million deal with Spotify. I repeat, that's nine figures, one zero zero comma zero 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 comma Zero, zero, zero. <laughs> who are those people who listen to Joe Rogan? They are mostly not latte sipping, national public radio listening, 
coastal elites in New York City or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco or whatever, they are mostly or more often than not male, more often than not white. There's some truck drivers among them. There's some Trump voters among them. So this culture war that's well advanced here uh, in the United States in which we are, in effect, uh, mutually contemptuous of one another based upon what uh, you know camp we belong in. Joe Rogan is right at the center of it, and his audience substantially is on the, quote, wrong side from a progressive point of view. A lot of this um, uh, enmity directed toward Rogan is really directed toward uh, his audience. I'd love to see the internal statistics from Spotify. I might bet would be that the number of coastal elites tuning into Joe Rogan is surprisingly high and probably just jumped a whole lot in the last week or so. Well, that may be true. Uh, and I don't know what Spotify is going to let us know, but I, I agree. I'd, I'd love to know about that. But I just want to say something about Joe Rogan's use in quotation marks, as it were, of the N-word. I'm not going to say the N-word on your you know, distinguished program, but um, I should be able to say it. It's just a word. I'm talking about a word. I'm not talking about a slur. Uh, and neither was Joe Rogan's use of it a slur. He wasn't pointing to a person and calling them an N-I-G-G-E-R in a way of, of, of being a, a derogation of an insult. He was speaking about speaking. That is to say, he was saying that the word exists, and then he was saying the word in the context of quoting someone else's use of it or uh, whatever. We have uh, a uh, we, we have a genre here of music, and it's called hip hop or rap, in which the word is used regularly by people who refer to themselves and others as N-I-G-G-E-R's, etc. And they are not using it as a slur either. It's a part of the English language. Now, now this thing that we're doing here, where we're making the utterance of certain sounds an indication of a person's racism and then seeking to cancel people for it being revealed that they uttered sounds, not without any reference to their intent, uh, is a bizarre uh, uh, phenomenon. And uh, I think that it's actually not a sign of strength by the people, Black people, who insist that the sound of the word is so injurious to them. Uh, I think it's a sign of their weakness. There's something almost pathetic about being requiring people to indulge you by not making certain sounds with their mouth because hearing it reminds you of lynching, of uh, uh, night riders coming down on black people and, and you know who are defenseless and are being uh, set upon and whatnot. It reminds you of a history of, of oppression and you can't use the word. They're now trying to ban the use of the word Negro with a capital N, N-E-G-R-O. This is a subsidiary development in this N-word uh, banning process because people don't like the sound of that word either when that word for almost a century was a commonplace reference uh, to African You'd have to expunge pretty much every book that refers to anything uh, in terms of race uh, in American society from uh, 1890 until 1990 to get rid of the word Negro, and there are people who are trying to prevent others from using it. And this is a, a bizarre exhibition of their weakness. Those people are not majority African-American or Black, it appears to me, at least. It seems like the 
a lot of the voices getting most upset about this are white. Um, and it seems more of a kind of elite, intra-elite power battle to do with the nature of the media in which this race issue is just a handy battering ram. That's an interesting observation. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but uh, you well may be right. It is a part of the vocabulary of virtue signaling for elite whites to take their stand against the N-word and anyone else's utterance of it. Uh, it's another way that they can show that they're on the right side of history, entirely divorced both from reality um, and from whatever might be the actual interest of African-Americans. Do you think they'll win on this Joe Rogan issue? Do you think do you think that those forces will prevail? No, I don't, uh, frankly, because I think Rogan has an audience. And I think even if Spotify were to, to deny him a platform, um, the you know, we live in a new technological age now. Uh, Unheard is mm. on the scene. Substack right. is on the scene. Uh, you know, uh, people don't require legacy media platforms in order to be able to get their, their voices heard. Joe Rogan is Joe Rogan. He's gonna keep on being Joe Rogan. So if we wanna end on a little bit more of a hopeful note, maybe you just struck it there, which is that some of these battles are beginning to seem quite transparently cynical and some of the logic is not there and everyone can see that. And maybe this is actually the kind of last gasps of a, of a, a way of thinking that is in recession and that with these new forces you know you and I are having this conversation um, it feels like you can speak freely maybe we should be hopeful that this kind of these these tortured ways of thinking won't prevail well Freddie I hope you're right and the what I know I don't know if you're right or not but what I do know is that I am not going to shut up well that, it's excellent to hear and uh, I hope you'll come on the show again and talk to us some more. Thank you very much, Freddie, for having me. And I hope we can talk again soon. That was Glenn Lowry, professor, author, commentator, explainer, helping us to understand and navigate some of the choppier waters of race and race relations in the United States. He was forthright, as always, and told us there that he plans not to shut up and to carry on speaking his mind, and certainly we hope he does. Thanks to him for joining, and thank you to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.